Thank you for waiting, ladies and gentlemen. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may begin. Thank you very much. Uh, greetings and welcome, everybody. Well, welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name, again, is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. Uh, we're delighted that you can join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, if you will, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Uh, Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on Wednesday, September 19th. Uh, please join us for that call. Uh, the uh, article for that call is in today's issue of JAMA, August 15th, Effect of pap Human Papillomavirus-like Particle Vaccine Amongst Women with Pre-Existing Infection, a Randomized Trial. So uh, that should be a really great call uh, in September. Uh, today, our featured uh, author is Dr. Uh, Royce Ziegelstein, and uh, his article, "Emotional Acute Emotional Stress and Cardiac Arrhythmias, uh, which was in the July 18, 2007 uh, edition of uh, JAMA. Dr. Ziegelstein is a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University. He's a cardiologist and vice chairman of, the, uh, of medicine at Johns Hopkins uh, Bayview Medical Center in Baltimore. Dr. Ziegelstein uh, has been at uh, Johns Hopkins for quite a long time uh, and has been very active in both clinical and basic science research, uh, most recently focusing on the relationship between depression, anxiety, emotional stress, and cardiovascular disease. Dr. Ziegelstein is the leader of the cardiovascular working group of the NIH-funded Johns Hopkins Center for Mind-Body Research. So he's the perfect person to have uh, written this article and to be with us today. Uh, welcome, Dr. Ziegelstein. Uh, thank you very much. As the moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Ziegelstein's uh, research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. This article is uh, slightly different than uh, past articles that we've done. This is not, per se, a research article, though it's, it's based on uh, a deep body of research. This was uh, an article from the Clinician's Corner uh, of JAMA, which is a case presentation, as everybody knows, uh, connected with a uh, essentially a summary of the literature and a discussion. And we really look forward to Dr. Ziegelstein uh, reviewing some of that with us and then uh, answering our questions. Thank you. Uh, the, the purpose of Author in the Room is to hear directly from the author, in this case, Dr. Ziegelstein, um, and uh, to understand how we can take uh, this research, this new knowledge, and put it into practice. Uh, here's how the hour will go. Uh, Dr. Ziegelstein will spend approximately 10 minutes summarizing uh, this topic area, uh, and then we'll, I'll take about five minutes just to draw out some of the implications for real, the real-world practice setting, and then we'll take your comments and questions. Uh, I want to stress how important it is uh, for you, for your participation in these calls. It's a great forum in which you can get clarification on anything in the article by hearing directly from the lead author, and to contemplate uh, the significance of uh, this uh, uh, knowledge and other aspects of your uh, practice. Uh, your participation need not be just in terms of questions, but uh, we'd like to hear your experiences as well and how you've incorporated some of this knowledge into your practice. There are approximately 
30 uh, people enrolled on this call with several individuals per line, thus the little bit of bottleneck in terms of us getting started. Um, one other note, uh, this call is being recorded. It is made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as a streaming video or podcast, and complete details can be found under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are available in that format uh, as well. So let's get started. Please, again, let me introduce Dr. Roy Ziegelstein, who will overview uh, his article. Dr. Ziegelstein. Uh, thank you very much. So I, I know that there are um, a variety of different listeners on the line, and uh, it's really a pleasure to be able to communicate um, the substance of my article and this subject matter to so many different people who are listening. Um, I find it interesting that the uh, format is uh, to introduce new knowledge to a, a broad uh, listening group. Um, because, in fact, in contrast to many things that are discussed uh, in this format, I suspect that if, um, like Rip Van Winkle, having woken up from 20 years of sleep, if someone were to be joining on the other end of uh, this line who had woken up after a 500-year sleep, they would be surprised to hear that there was a, an author in the room from JAMA talking about the connection between the mind and the body, uh, or a connection between emotional stress and the heart as being new knowledge. I think that person would say that the connection between the mind and the body and between emotional stress and the heart um, is something that he or she was very familiar with. Um, and uh, so the question is, how have we come so far in several hundred years to call something like this uh, new knowledge, and what would a person listening on the other end uh, who had woken up after a 500-year sleep uh, be thinking today? Um, the article that um, is the subject of this conversation is one, uh, as uh, uh, it was said, in the July 18, 2007 JAMA on acute emotional stress and cardiac arrhythmias. And uh, in that report, I discussed two of my patients. One of whom uh, had a very acutely emotionally stressful episode that then culminated in the development of atrial fibrillation, which is a uh, heart rhythm abnormality originating from the top chamber or atrium of the heart that is uh, not generally life-threatening. Um, we know that the timing of the acutely stressful episode and the atrial fibrillation were very closely linked because the patient had a defibrillator uh, which administered a shock uh, to his heart. And that defibrillator could register exactly when the arrhythmia or the rhythm disturbance began. The second patient described was a, a very sad uh, case of a, a woman and a man who were at home. The man uh, who did not have heart disease known um, suddenly uh, um, passed out, lost consciousness, and in fact uh, died. His wife called paramedics, and when they came, they found him to be in cardiac arrest. They began trying to revive him. Unfortunately, they were unsuccessful. While they were reviving him, his wife then lost consciousness, and she was found to have a potentially lethal heart rhythm abnormality. Um, she, however, was successfully resuscitated, 
and serves as a, a, a tremendously poignant example of the connection between uh, emotional stress and potentially lethal cardiac arrhythmias or heart rhythm disturbances. In the article, I review some of the science that um, is behind this connection between acute emotional stress and cardiac rhythm disturbances. It, it turns out that um, the 500-year-old uh, person on the other end who had woken up from a deep sleep for hundreds of years would know the connection um, from anecdotes, from stories that he or she had heard about where someone uh, might have, for example, passed out or died after a very stressful episode. In fact, there are numerous such stories recounted in ancient literature, including the Bible, but what this person would be surprised to note is that over the last few decades, there has been more attention paid to this um, uh, uh, issue. In the early 1970s, uh, the famous physician, Dr. George Engel, collected 170 cases of uh, what is called sudden cardiac death, that is, patients who experienced uh, an episode of uh, abrupt dying after having previously been well. Um, all of those 170 cases were in the setting of an acutely emotionally stressful or disruptive episode. He noted that there were eight categories of stress that could produce this sudden cardiac death, um, five of those eight being the death of other people, as was the case in the second uh, situation that I described. Interestingly, women seemed to be more prone to the uh, effects of the death of a significant other on their heart rhythm. Um, the article that I am discussing uh, discusses some of the relationship between acutely stressful episodes and heart muscle function uh, disturbances. So that is an acutely stressful episode that then results in dysfunction of the heart, where the heart suddenly and sometimes severely becomes weakened. Typically, this occurs in women. Um, it is called a stress cardiomyopathy. Uh, the Japanese have described it as takotsubu cardiomyopathy, and it seems to affect the very tip or apex of the heart preferentially and causes a ballooning of the apex of the heart. Um, and again, it, this is, it occurs after an episode of acute emotional stress, and it may be because the apex or tip of the heart is more richly innervated by the sympathetic nervous system. Um, the article also discusses the relationship between acute emotional stress and lack of blood flow or poor blood flow to the heart, which we call ischemia. And it turns out that emotional stress may be um, particularly prone to causing um, myocardial ischemia or poor blood flow to the heart because of a, a potentially devastating combination of causing increasing demand for blood and oxygen on the one hand and actually decreased supply of blood and oxygen on the other. So it turns out that when we exercise, our heart muscle understandably demands more blood and oxygen because our blood pressure is going up, our heart rate is going up as we try to deliver more blood and oxygen to the vital tissues but that's generally accompanied by a, an increase in blood flow to the heart um, to try to match the increase in demand. Emotional stress, by contrast to physical stress, 
generally causes increased demand for blood and oxygen, and in combination with that, a decrease in blood flow, so that this may particularly make people who have acute emotional stress prone to developing heart attacks or angina. The third uh, and more um, uh, larger topic discussed in the article is the relationship between emotional stress and potentially fatal heart rhythms. And it turns out that um, while the person who might have slept for 500 years might not be uh, surprised to learn about this, um, he would be impressed, I think, by the amount of research in the last few decades on this topic. Um, Rachel Lampert at Yale has shown, for example, that people who have um, defibrillators who experience a, a shock to um, try to avoid the potential life-threatening consequence of this heart rhythm disturbance, more frequently recall that in the minutes prior to the shock, they were angry. Um, and it seems that anger, a, a specific form of emotional stress, may lead to um, potentially lethal heart rhythm disturbances. Her work also shows, very interestingly, that ventricular tachycardia, which is a particular form of heart rhythm disturbance, that, that we sometimes induce purposely in the hospital laboratory to try to test the defibrillator, that when that arrhythmia or heart rhythm disturbance is deliberately uh, instigated in a person who is asked to recall a particularly angry or emotionally stressful episode, or who is asked to do mental arithmetic deliberately to produce emotional stress, that heart rhythm disturbance is generally faster and more difficult to terminate by the defibrillator. So that is to say, more, protect, more potentially lethal. Um, interestingly, there is also a body of research in the last few decades that shows that something can be done about um, the potentially lethal effects of emotional stress on the heart. I think we're all uh, probably very familiar with the fact that there are some drugs, for example, beta blockers, that can potentially reduce the effects of the sympathetic nervous system on the heart. Um, but many uh, practitioners and patients might be surprised to learn that there are many non-drug therapies for example, relaxation therapy, biofeedback, uh, controlled slow breathing, yoga, meditation, um, and uh, other forms of uh, treatment that can help to reduce the effects of the sympathetic nervous system on the heart and may reduce the likelihood that acute emotional stress will have a deleterious consequence on the heart. For example, one author, Van Dixhorn and others, showed that when people who had sustained a heart attack were taught relaxation therapy, they experienced fewer cardiac events over the next five years than a matched group of patients who were not taught relaxation therapy. Um, I think all this is uh, very uh, interesting, and the question uh, that I think people should ask is, what does it mean for me? Uh, what does it mean for if I'm a practitioner for my practice? Um, and I think here we should go back to the person who might have been sleeping for 500 years. As I mentioned, that person might be a little surprised to be hearing this quote-unquote new knowledge being discussed because uh, that person from 500 years ago would have been quite familiar 
of the connection between the heart and the emotions and between the mind and the body from anecdotes that he or she had heard about from 500 years ago. But I think that the person would be very impressed by the degree to which science now enables us to rigorously study the pathways, the mechanisms that connect emotional stress and problems with the heart. And he or she would be very impressed by our ability to rigorously study, scientifically study, the effects of certain treatments on relaxation, on reducing emotional stress, and on heart function. I think these are the things that we now bring to the table that weren't available 500 years ago. And in fact, my major message for people is that these forms of therapy for emotional stress, for both reducing it when it occurs and for trying to avoid it before it occurs, um, that these uh, therapies are as rigorously studied and as rigorously studyable as any drugs that are currently being used for the treatment of heart disease, that we can now really apply rigorous science to these uh, things that we could not apply 500 years ago. So I think the person who woke up from a 500-year sleep would be very impressed by our current science. He or she would be impressed that there now is greater attention to the connection between the heart and the emotions. He or she would be very impressed to learn that there was now a connection between the mind and the body that was attracting the interest of researchers and clinicians around the world. Um, but I think also this person would be dismayed by our fragmented care. Um, he or she would be dismayed that there was an artificial separation that had occurred over the last few decades or over the last hundred years between the mind and the body, somehow rendering scientific uh, treatment of, uh, somehow rendering rather pharmacologic drug treatment of medical conditions as being scientific and a more holistic or integrative approach as being uh, not scientific. I think that this person who woke up after a 500-year sleep would be disappointed by that. And lastly, I think he or she would be disappointed by the fact that there were now clinicians who knew very little, if anything, about these other forms of treatment for heart disease. He or she would be disappointed about the fact that there were cardiologists or internists who weren't paying attention to the mind-body connection. And I think what we can do is to try to better connect them with better training, uh, with giving practitioners more time to take care of both the mind uh, and the body, um, and with allowing practitioners to partner um, with <clears throat> trained and credentialed practitioners of uh, yoga, relaxation therapy, biofeedback, etc., to bring them into the healthcare team and make them part of their practice. And I would enjoy discussing uh, any or all of these things with the people who are calling in who may not have been asleep for 500 years. <laughs> Great. Well, Roy, it was a, uh, a spectacular summary. I really appreciate it. Very compelling. And I, I, wa I want to note for the audience that you at present are working on reducing your, your stress level because you're on vacation, and I do appreciate you joining us from, uh, from the middle of your vacation. So. Uh, Thanks for that, and thanks for your summary. My stress level is as low as it could possibly be. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> the, uh, and for August, we do have a lot of people signed on, so we do want to move towards your questions and or comments uh, quite quickly at this point after 
after Rory's wonderful uh, summary. This really is, I think, just a, a fantastic area for which uh, I think we, it has been common sense for a long time. On the other hand, it's very it's common sense that exercise is one of the best things we can do, and we know how far short uh, we fall in that regard as well. Uh, so why don't we turn to uh, the, the uh, participants for their questions or comments at this time. Uh, the operator will come back on, just give you some instructions in that regard as to how to get in the queue, and, uh, and then we'll start. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star and then one on your touchtone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue at any time, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you are using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, if there are any questions, please press star and then one on your touchtone phones. Our first question comes from Dana Murphy. Please go ahead. And as you're as you're uh, getting ready to give us your comment or question, please just let us know again who you are and where you're calling from. That would be helpful. Hi, I'm Dana Murphy with the Physician Insurers Association of America, and I wondered if you saw any potential for medical malpractice in opening up a door this new and this wide. Um, so this is Roy Eagleson again uh, answering. Um, I think that um, in uh, I think that's an interesting question. I think that in um, the modern uh, era, any form of therapy is uh, potentially uh, subject to uh, medical malpractice litigation. Um, I believe that uh, that um, door, as you say, is opened wider when we allow it uh, to be entered by people who are not uh, credentialed, uh, who are not well-trained, whether or not they be practitioners of um, uh, psychotherapy, practitioners of... um, uh, yoga, of relaxation therapy, or practitioners of um, uh, what we might, what might call more uh, conventional medical therapy. Um, what I would say is that that door is closed, as many studies show, or uh, that door begins to close as we improve our communication with patients, our explanation to them about what's going on, Uh, our education of patients. Um, All studies show that when uh, physicians are better communicators, or I should say when practitioners are better communicators, when they communicate a sense of caring, empathy, uh, when they educate, when they explain things, that that door is closed. And I I would argue that um, uh, it, it uh, it seems to me that anyone can be guilty of poor communication. My sense is that since communication is so much a part of some of these um, more holistic treatments, so much a part of psychotherapy, so much a part of relaxation therapy, etc., that it would be less likely rather than more likely uh, that that door would be opened. I think one aspect of that question uh, might be, Roy, is, and you were alluding to this in your comments as well, is how do we take this knowledge and begin to embed it, if you will, in our systems of care? And I don't know that we have to address that right now, but we will, I'm sure, with with questions that come up, so we can hold on to that that question for a little bit. But what can we do to to, uh, screen people who are at high risk uh, uh, obviously, I think as a primary care physician, many of us try to balance 
both the emotional or psychological mental health of our patients with their physical health. And uh, I think we, the, the good clinician does that intuitively on a, on a routine uh, basis. And the question we might ask based on this paper, is there something more that we ought to be doing, uh, some specific screening test? Uh, again, I don't think we have to answer it right now, but I think we'll get there by the end of the by the end of the hour. Okay. Next question. Operator. Our next question comes from Sydney Rosenblum. Please go ahead. Hi, doctor. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Good. Um, um, I, it's ironic this call because I suffered myself from cardiac arrhythmia from uh, acute stress, and I actually wrote the poem in which appeared on the same page as your advertisement. Did you get a chance to see that? I didn't. I'm sorry. Oh, it's but okay. I'll, I will most Son. certainly look after we speak. So, Mr. Rosenblum, this, it's the it's the advertisement for author in the room. Uh, yeah, oh, is and that right? The we'll poem I wrote back. was dedicated to my cardiologist, uh, Dr. Coppola. It's called Heartland, hmm. and it speaks very directly. I thought it was an irony that it would appear on the same page. I thought maybe it was done purposely. Um, so we'll, I just we'll want... have to go back and get that. We appreciate you doing that. Okay, and um, I would just like the doctor to define um, stress or acute stress uh, and the mind-body connection. What, in actuality, is the territory between the mind and the body? Is that thoughts or is it emotions that are generated, unexpressed feelings, repressed feelings? I think it could be a little more specific. So I, I think that's a terrific question, and, and I would a- answer yes. To the question you just asked, but <clears throat> but I'm I'm going to describe that a little more. It's basically everything that you just said. Um, it, it's interesting that um, uh, some of the reports of um, stress-induced arrhythmias and some of the reports of stress-induced heart muscle func- heart muscle dysfunction are actually not what some people would call stressful. That is to say, they are um, not um, negative stressors. Mm-hmm. Um, there are stories of people um, walking into a surprise birthday party, which most of us would consider to be a positive stressor, and experiencing... Uh, an unprepared action. An unprepared action, and experiencing what we would now call stress cardiomyopathy or takotsubu. Okay, I have um, one, one specific question, and I'll get off. Thank you. Um, I notice sometimes if I'm having dinner with friends or something, and something is said, or I'm in a situation where I'm interacting with a person, uh, my my pulse rate starts to get kind of erratic. Is that what's considered... Um, arrhythmia? It, it, it may be. I, uh, it may be. I can't, uh, I can't uh, say without... Um, Specific examination. Specifically, and in fact, uh, as you may know, there's not a perfect relationship between uh, a person's perception of their heart rhythm and what their heart rhythm actually uh, is. Sometimes people experience palpitations, for yeah. example, when in fact their heart rhythm, if we look with an electrocardiogram, looks normal, and I think often under those circumstances, there's something else going on that is causing them to experience some uncomfortable sensation in their chest that they perceive as palpitation. All right. Um, so there's not a one-to-one correlation between 
the experience, the the um, the symptom experience, and what actually is being recorded. But I noticed I, when these episodes occur, and I'm able to express those thoughts and feelings, it miraculously seems to vanish. Yes, and so again, what the the, the question is whether or not um, these uh, thoughts or these emotions are actually causing heart rhythm disturbances, or whether they're causing disturbances in, in a functional way in something else in your heart function in your uh, heart blood flow or potentially in none of those things there might be some other connection between the emotions that you're experiencing and the body that's causing you to experience something that for you is not pleasurable so can we uh, uh, label this an electrical phenomena since thinking has an electrical potential over synapses and that affecting the electrical aspect of the heart function yeah, so I think that the way that um, the way that this occurs, was that a poor model. The way that this occurs generally is that there's typically something in the environment that is that stimulates parts of the brain, especially the thalamus, uh, and then eventually the hypothalamus to cause sympathetic nervous system discharge and activation of the adrenocortical system. What's the best way to address this? I mean, I've had years of therapy. I don't want to make myself the personal case, but any quick remedies of thought? Well, I think that um, I don't know what specific kind of therapy you've gotten, and we don't have to go into that in this particular conversation. What I would say is if you've gotten different forms of therapy and you still are experiencing this, you should probably try something else, much as um, if you were experiencing angina, absolute garden variety angina no never. and i no but if you were yeah if i were sorry. and i tried you on a calcium channel blocker and it weren't working um i would not give up and not say we've reached the end of the line and we've exhausted all of the potential therapies in our medicine chest mm-hmm. what i would say is let's expand our medicine chest past just drugs um let's uh if if i'm a practitioner and all i've been taught is drugs um, and all I'm comfortable with is prescribing drugs. Let me partner with people who uh, are very skilled uh, and uh, credentialed and licensed in the provision of some of the therapies that I talk about in the article, uh, some which I've mentioned in this phone conversation. Is that the relaxation response, yes. Dr. Benson? And, and I can tell you that many, uh, and it could be psychotherapy, it could be... Um, uh, it could be relaxation therapy, it could be yoga, it could be Tai Chi. It, there are many different forms of treatment that, can, that, that have uh, been shown, not just by anecdote, but actually by scientific study, to blunt the sympathetic nervous response of the heart. And much as I would be telling you if you told me that you had tried drug X and it failed, I wouldn't say, let's stop there. I would say, let's try something else. Well, I like to try a lifestyle change and, and not get uh, upset about things. Yeah, sometimes it takes um, more than just uh, willing it not to happen, um, but, uh, uh, and often it takes um, the uh, assistance of trained uh, experts in this area, and that's uh, what I would advise you. Thank you for your exhaustive answers Welcome and your in. listening. And, and I will look at your... Uh, at your read my poem, please. Yes, definitely. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Pamela McCabe. Please go ahead. Um, thank you for this presentation. I'm um, primarily interested in um, 
atrial fibrillation, and although your uh, discussion um, pertains to acute emotional stress, I'm interested in the effect of ongoing emotional distress and some of the uh, preliminary research that has been out there in terms of trait hostility, trait anger, uh, trait anxiety. Um, what what do you have to say about that? I'd be interested in your thoughts. Thank you. Great. Pamela, thanks for the question. And Pamela is from the Mayo Clinic. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that uh, there's probably, there's, there's certainly literature um, in both areas on the effect of more chronic exposure to, um, to what we might call uh, chronic stress um, and its effect on um, heart rhythm disturbances, not just atrial fibrillation, but also ventricular arrhythmias. Um, a lot of the work uh, comes, as, as uh, many of the uh, people on the phone uh, may know, a lot of the work comes um, from more abrupt episodes in emotional stress. And I think part of that is because <clears throat> it's a lot easier to, um, to temporally link uh, acutely stressful episodes and rhythm disturbances um, than it is to um, link in a causal way, chronic stress with um, episodes of atrial fibrillation. From my perspective, I think it's very likely that chronic emotional stress, um, whether it's hostility, anger, uh, anxiety, I think it's very, very likely that these um, more chronic or or trait um, uh, forms of emotional stress are producing um, greater vulnerability of uh, the heart to rhythm disturbances. Whether or not that is um, uh, a chronic uh, a chronic stressful environment, if you will, that then makes the person more susceptible to the acute effects or the effects of more acute episodes of stress, or whether it's simply the chronic um, forms of stress that then are associated with heart rhythm disturbances, I don't think we know very well. And this is something that we are trying to study in our own group at Johns Hopkins. Uh, I believe that there are many um, uh, research centers around the country that are studying this as well. Um, I think that what um, this is a very important question for clinicians and researchers because it's um, um, much uh, more reasonable to target the more chronic stress than to try to avoid um, acute episodes of stress. Uh, it's much easier to try to um, uh, um, provide people treatments to deal with the more chronic stress that the uh, questioner is asking about um, than it is to try to have people avoid uh, or better deal with a very abrupt episode of emotional stress. So I think these, this is a very important research question. Um, as, uh, as, the, uh, as my article notes, that a lot of uh, episodes of atrial fibrillation, which was the subject of the call, originate from sleeves of tissue that are in the pulmonary veins. And uh, these, uh, these heart, these muscle cells, these uh, cells are quite susceptible to um, the uh, changes in autonomic tone. Um, 
we sometimes think of uh, this as somebody who might be up all night, for example, after uh, an, an, a, a more acutely stressful period, or somebody who's had alcohol and then been up all night. This, the combination seems to make people particularly vulnerable um, to the development of atrial fibrillation. Um, my, my suspicion is that people with chronic forms of stress are more susceptible to these acute forms of stress, but, um, but I think this really needs to be studied more carefully. Thank you. Roy, is it worth uh, sort of jumping in here and just talking a little bit about uh, a discrete intervention? Uh, how do we target those folks who might be at an increased risk? Uh, uh, are there screening tools or other things that we could use that would fit into our system, and how do we identify which individuals we ought to uh, ought to screen uh, so to give us more guidance as to how to target such therapy? So I think that... Um Broadly speaking, there are um, there are two ways of uh, uh, dealing with potential changes in practice. One way would be to um, try to define people who are high risk, um, and then to um, uh, try to apply screening tools um, for um, stress, for example, and then treatments for stress to that. A group that we would consider to be uh, at increased risk. Um, I think that that's uh, a reasonable way of doing things, but uh, probably, uh, to my mind, not ideal. So in that uh, in that scheme, um, what would happen is that we would apply to our patients. If I were a practitioner in internal medicine, I would apply, for example. Uh, a, um, a Framingham risk score to my patients and then identify patients that either were uh, at risk for heart problems because of a high uh, risk score uh, or um, uh, people who had already had established heart disease. And then I would uh, screen those patients who were at high risk with some uh, form of um, a questionnaire or a screening tool that might be useful in my practice to um, to detect people who are um, are at risk for, from an emotional perspective. For example, we might give them the general health questionnaire or a Beck anxiety inventory, something like that. And then um, people who, uh, as we would say, screen positive for their heart and screen positive for their emotions, we would then refer them to um, people on our healthcare team who were uh, trained uh, and um, uh, credentialed and high-quality practitioners in any of the stress management um, uh, treatments that I described earlier in this conversation and in the article, or uh, and or refer to a, a psychologist uh, or a psychiatrist. Um, I think that that. Uh, is a reasonable approach, and probably um, the people who are on the line need some take-home message. They need some um, <clears throat> piece of information that they can take away from this call that would change their practice, and that might be a reasonable thing to do. So a person could walk away from this and say, what I'm going to do as a result of this article and this phone call 
is um, from now on, I'm going to uh, try better to identify people who are high risk from a cardiac perspective based on established disease. So they've had a heart attack, they've had angina, they have had a positive stress test, they have a cath that shows coronary disease, uh, or are at increased risk because of a high Framingham risk score. And then I'm going to administer them some questionnaire to try to detect uh, their level of emotional stress. Um, uh, and I could even partner potentially with a uh, psychologist or psychiatrist uh, that might work in my town or might work in my practice or might work at my medical center who could tell me what the best screening tool is from his or her perspective. And then once I uh, have identified people at high mind-body risk, if you want to call it that, I will make a referral. Um, and I think that might be a, a useful a nugget of information to take away from this call. From my perspective, that, that wouldn't be ideal. Um, earlier in the conversation, uh, you uh, uh, drew a parallel, for example, between stress reduction and exercise. And you correctly, I think, drew the parallel and also correctly noted that we've known about the health benefits of exercise I would add proper diet, I would add uh, stress management for many, many years, and yet we all know how hard it is for people in this society to make uh, healthful changes. But that doesn't stop us from making recommendations to all of our patients on healthy diet, on exercise, on smoking cessation, uh, on stress management, I would argue. So I, I would personally prefer um, at least having in your office some information, some educational material uh, on all of these things that we just discussed, on exercise, proper diet, stress management, potentially some websites that your patients can look at, potentially the name of some providers uh, of um, some of the modalities that we talked about, potentially the name of a psychotherapist, potentially the name of a uh, person who's skilled in relaxation therapy or yoga or meditation or biofeedback, having these things available to your patients to use uh, as, um, as they uh, see fit and potentially have enough expertise or experience with these things yourself as a practitioner to be able to uh, speak about them with your patients. I, I prefer uh, not just targeting uh, what you might call at-risk groups, but um, having this be part of our advice for healthy living to all people. But I, I understand and recognize that that is practically more difficult in a world when the average practitioner is fighting uh, to keep his or her head above water and spend 15 minutes with each patient. I understand how difficult it, it is. It certainly is challenging. And when we talk yeah. about additional screening or preventive measures, I think it does cause acute emotional stress to most of our primary care physicians yeah. out there, understandably so. Yeah. But the literature, I think, says that uh, if we were to do institute all screening and preventive recommendations uh, to a panel of about 2,000 patients, it would take about eight and a half hours a day just to do that work, which really speaks to the need to have teams, as you're alluding to. Yeah. And this, is, this need not be just physician work, but as physicians, we really need to lead our organizations toward, towards having much more robust teams. Uh, to yes, help I, do the screening and to do the counseling and whatnot. Of yeah, I, I would agree. I'm, I'm very cognizant of the importance of leaving people with practical information. I don't want people to leave this phone uh, conversation feeling that uh, this is a pie-in-the-sky, uh, ridiculous um, 
uh, conversation. I absolutely don't. I think the practical advice uh, is to change your own practice by having resources available for patients. Um, screening at-risk people is very, very reasonable. Um, partnering with people in your community, um, partnering with people in your practice, partnering with people in your medical center who are skilled practitioners in these um, uh, treatments, I think is very, very reasonable, much as, for example, I, as a non-interventional cardiologist, do not do angioplasty. But I know enough about it to discuss it with my patients. And I also know skilled, licensed, credentialed, high-quality practitioners of angioplasty, for example, whom I refer my patients to. That would be the, a similar kind of uh, relationship that I, uh, that I do have now with um, uh, psychotherapists and others, and that I would advise other people to have as well. On the other hand, um, I think part of a conversation like this is to say, how can we change practice more generally in this country, um, and I, or across the world for that matter? And I think one of the things we should be thinking about is the possibility of, of changing practice for the health of our population. Right now, we have a lot of unhealthy Americans and unhealthy people around the world who are not being treated well by our current health care system. And I think this might be one of the things we could do to change it. Uh, I think you're. I think you're giving us a lot of very practical uh, uh, recommendations, and I appreciate it. Uh, let's go on to the next call. Thank you once again. If there are any questions, please press star and then one on your touchtone phones. Anybody in the queue right now? At this time, we have no further questions. Great. So, Roy, um, uh, very interesting neurobiology here. You you alluded to it a little bit, talked about it a little bit. How do how are you going about exploring some of this in terms of the the neural pathways and what sort of imaging are you doing? Do you, do you see any potential in that regard uh, looking forward as to uh, uh, potentially identifying folks who are at high risk? Or is it way too early for that at this point? Uh, I think it. I think it's probably a little too early at this point to think that we could screen patients with, for example, functional neuroimaging. It's also at this point, unfortunately, far too expensive to use, for example, fMRI or functional MRI uh, or PET scanning as screening tools. I think right now they're still in the research um, realm, but I, I do think that they're important because um, once we define the, the basic uh, pathways, we can actually um, better control them to do research that is not just, not just outcome-based, that's of course very important, but actually mechanistic, uh, mechanism-based. I think that's when we really will have a better understanding of how to uh, manipulate or control or regulate um, these neural pathways to improve um, uh, heart health and overall uh, physical health. But I think it's far too early right now to recommend these things uh, as screening tools and also much too expensive. In terms of uh, the stress intervention, which you mentioned, that would go along uh, with, or at least a discussion of stress, which would go along with our general counseling about diet and exercise, smoking cessation, how would you, um, I hear that and I want to do it, uh, and I will I will test some ways of doing it. How do you, how do you generally script that mm -hmm. uh, in your conversation when you get to sort of a, a preventive 
part of your conversation with your patients? No, thank you for asking that. So I think that for me, it's it's very easy. Um, what I tell people, um, I think first of all, let me say that people come to the visit um, with variable um, uh, degrees of acceptance, if you will, of the potential uh, that uh, the mind and the body are connected. The vast majority of people understand this somewhere uh, in, inside of them, that there is a, a strong connection. Uh, you heard one of the callers talk about uh, in, in, in himself a relationship between emotional stress and arrhythmias. Most patients know of either something in themselves or in a family member or a friend that they understand that these two are connected. For me personally, on the one hand, it's, it may be a little more challenging than for some primary care physicians. Patients, once they get referred to me, are come to the table with some expectations. They're being referred to a, a cardiologist at an academic medical center, um, and they come to the table with some uh, expectations. However, they also understand, I think, the vast majority of this connection. What I tell them is that while I am a cardiologist um, and while I absolutely will uh, thoroughly evaluate their heart function, their heart rhythm function, um, their heart blood vessel function absolutely thoroughly that they can walk away from the visit with me knowing that they have been completely evaluated for their heart condition from the more uh, conventional, um, in the more conventional way, that I also consider myself a doctor and not just a cardiologist, and that to care for their problems, I need to look beyond just the heart, that their doctor did not refer them to me just so that I could look at the heart, but that so we could work as a team to try to find out why they're having the bothersome symptoms or the bothersome problems that have brought them to my office. I explained to them that from my perspective, there is an intimate connection between the emotions uh, and between the heart function, whether it be heart rhythm, heart blood flow, or heart uh, contractility, and that I uh, can tell them both stories of patients stories of family members and friends and show them literature um, that shows that this uh, relationship is just as uh, important, if not more important, than anything else that they might have been, uh, dis that they might have been uh, uh, discussed or that it might have been discussed with them about their heart. Um, and that in order for me to take uh, great care of them, I need to address everything. I explained to them that I do feel comfortable discussing this with them, that I do feel comfortable treating many of the emotional disturbances that might be affecting their heart, but that I work with a team of people who can um, uh, help me to help them and their primary care doctor uh, or primary care practitioner to take good care of their heart and of their emotions and of their, um, of their overall health. Um, and most people uh, are quite open um, as long as they understand that it's not an either-or. Uh, I'm not saying to them, I'm not, I'm not going to pay attention to your heart because what you've come to me with is very clearly a problem that's related to anxiety. It's very clearly a problem that's related to depression. It's very clearly a problem that's related to anger. Um, I don't do that. Uh, I make sure that they understand that I am thoroughly investigating their heart, but that I also must investigate and treat their anger, their hostility, their emotional stress. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, operator, any other calls in the queue? 
We do. Marlon Matson, please go ahead. Okay, I'm calling from uh, Weill Cornell Medical College. I was wondering if you could amplify um, on the uh, evidence that you indicate in the article um, about asymmetric brain activity uh, as being particularly important in making the heart more susceptible to ventricular arrhythmias. So this is, thank you for asking the question. This is Roy Ziegelstein again answering. So this is a, a very new and I think fascinating uh, area. It seems, uh, as I uh, discussed in the article, it seems that um, particular forms of emotional stress, when we do uh, functional uh, imaging of the brain, that particular um, forms of emotional stress activate certain parts of the brain and particularly activate them in asymmetric um, ways. So there may be hot spots that light up on PET scanning, for example, um, that uh, uh, are on one side of the brain or the other, and that the more laterality that is shown on, um, for example, PET neuroimaging, the more uh, likely it is that patients have uh, electrocardiographic uh, changes that um, suggest that, there are, that they are uh, uh, more susceptible to ventricular arrhythmias. For example, there is a correlation between um, laterality on uh, PET imaging during emotional stress or during mental stress uh, and uh, changes in repolarization of the heart that make patients or potentially make patients more prone to um, potentially lethal ventricular rhythm disturbances. I think this is actually um, quite fascinating, and it may be that um, patients with coronary artery disease are even at uh, greater risk in terms of laterality of brain function during emotional or mental stress and these changes in the electrical activity of the heart. These studies that are um, uh, by uh, Sofer and others and uh, Critchley and others that are referred to in, uh, the, in the, uh, the paper that we're discussing now, um, these studies are really the first to show that there is a connection between uh, specific areas of the brain that are activated by emotional stress and electrical activity in the heart. Um, clearly, uh, Bernard Lown and others uh, three or four decades ago showed that uh, in animals that, that stimulation of certain parts of the brain, for example, the posterior hypothalamus, could increase sympathetic neural traffic to the heart and thereby make the dogs more susceptible to potentially lethal rhythm disturbances. But this is really the first information that I know of in human beings that shows by functional neuroimaging that there are specific areas of the brain that are activated that are also coupled with changes in electrical uh, activity in the heart. Where this, where this research will go, I think, at this moment, is not clear. But, but it, it really provides some very, very strong physiologic basis for this mind-body connection that I think uh, uh, is exciting and needs to be more thoroughly explored. I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, absolutely. No, that was very helpful. Well, that is all the time we have for questions today. It's really been a wonderful discussion of the issues brought out by this 
article. Dr. Ziegelstein, I'd like to thank you very much for your participation. Thank you. And we wish you well as you continue to work on your mind-body connection on your vacation right now. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us during your vacation. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on Wednesday, September 19th. The article is in today, August 15, 2007, JAMA, Effective Human Papillomavirus Vaccine Among Young Women with Pre-Existing Infection. Uh, author in the Room is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. It is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve care. And we thank each of you for being a part of Author in the Room today. Good day. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. Thank you all for participating, and you may all disconnect.